Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We told the truth, we obeyed the law, and we kept the peace. That's how former Vice President Walter Mondale summed up the achievements of Jimmy Carter's presidency. Carterland is a recent documentary by two Georgia filmmakers, the brothers Jim and Will Pattitz. They set out to understand what went wrong with Carter's presidency and why it's widely regarded as a failure. In the process, they discovered quite the opposite and tell a story that demonstrates how, while leading the nation through a series of extraordinary crises, Jimmy Carter also addressed climate change, championed social justice at home and abroad, including a framework for peace in the Middle East. The movie debuted at the 2020 Atlanta Film Festival a little earlier this year, and we'll listen back to an interview with the Pattis brothers later this hour. First, with its enormous viewership and widespread appeal to young adults, Adult Swim knows the power of visual art to reach a large audience. As the adult program block of the Cartoon Network, Adult Swim mainly airs original and acquired animated and live-action series. So their collaboration with Living Walls for a mural series seems ideal. Joining us now via Zoom to talk about the project are Monica Campana, co-founder and executive director of Living Walls, Bridget Kimbrough, production manager for Adult Swim, and mural artist Yusli Mathurian. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. How did the partnership between Adult Swim and Living Walls come about? So the project in general came about as a response to the acknowledgement of racial injustice that surfaced last summer. And within our network, we were looking at ways to organically address it. Um, As a brand, we've always stood for the principles of creative freedom and elevating the voice of artists. So looking at the platforms we had available, it was an organic solution for us to bring in local black talent to create murals in public spaces and living walls with their reputation and uh, the reason that they exist as a nonprofit to bring about social change was just a perfect partnership for us. Monica, did you want to add? For us, uh, when we got the first communication from Adult Swim with their interest in doing this project, for us it it was important to become a partner. It was important for us to support Adult Swim in this effort as we are looking for more, especially local companies, to invest in our local artists, uh, in our Black artists. So 
this is sort of like a theme for us already, right? Like we put so much investment in our local creatives that whenever we see other local corporations interested, it is kind of like a perfect fit. And we're really excited that this started last year and it has become an ongoing investment, which is super important for us. Bridget, did Adult Swim give the artists any guidelines or ideas that they wanted for each of them to include in their creations? Uh, We didn't, um, and we don't. In our initial discussions within the creative group, we found that the only way we could do this would be to open up our platforms um, to create the space for these artists and then get out of the way and let them bring their voices forward um, and say what it is they wanted to say. So there are some structures as far as what you can do in public spaces that go beyond us. But other than that, we want to choose artists we think have something to say and then let them say it. And before we bring in one of the artists, I wanted to ask, what was the process for submissions? Was this jury, did artists have to send a small illustration of what they wanted to do? We've done this in a very organic way. from the origins of the idea, we just naturally moved to kind of collecting artists that uh, our group followed that were local and also reaching out to different members of our staff. So we self collated a group of artists and through a series of meetings, just made a big list and narrowed it down and started reaching out. Usually, Mathurian, you are one of those artists. Would you describe your piece, Spread Love, Not Hate? Yes. So at the time when um, I got the opportunity, I was floored. Couldn't believe I got that email. Uh. (laughs) During that time, um, the George Floyd case was happening. And also there was a lot of um, hate crimes happening to the Asian community. With my work, I'm greatly influenced by what's happening around me in the now. And that was pretty much what was on my brain that week when I got the call to create a piece. And I wanted to create a piece that focused on Black and Asian culture and wanted to highlight how beautiful the cultures are and just to spread the message of, you know, spread love, not hating, especially with everything that was happening to both cultures. That was really important to me. The mural has wonderfully vivid colors. Why did you use different hues of pink and tan for the pigment of the woman's skin? Um, Well, for my work, I do a lot of like monochromatic, kind of like a monochromatic style into my work. I wanted to highlight all the tones that were in the garment on, on her face. And the model is actually a musician. She's an amazing guitarist that I was able to, to use for the work. So I'm glad I had a chance to do that. Can you tell us who she is? April K. I'm actually going to meet her next month when I go to New York and give her the original painting. Wow. Usually, have you ever created a mural before? I have created um, smaller murals. I think the biggest mural I've created was probably like 20, 25 feet. This was like double that size, triple the size. It was such an amazing experience working with Monica and Living Walls. I learned so much. I had a lot of fun creating the wall. I love Angela, who helped me out so much, who was the site manager, and Asha, who was the assistant. It was just a really good team. Um, Christian was amazing as well. She taught me a lot. And I truly feel empowered now to actually do another big wall because of my experience I had with living walls. Yeah. Well, I wondered before connecting with them or just as you were beginning, what was running through your mind? What concerns you had about creating such a large scale piece? I actually didn't think about any of the cons- any concerns. I was a little scared on the lift, <laughs> on the boom lift. Oh, yeah. But Christian helped me out so much with tutorials, and I just let go. <laughs> I let go of the fear, and I was just happy 
for the message that was going up on the wall, and I did it. Um, so uh, fear of heights cannot be a factor for artists in creating these murals. No, not at all. Not at all. You know, I wasn't scared of the height. I think I was just scared of, of it moving a little bit, but it was just normal. But it wasn't so bad. I got in a flow on my third day. How long did it take you to complete the mural? It took us about six to seven days in total, including with the outline and priming. So about seven days, about a week. Well, that's a pretty healthy chunk of your life to be working on that scale. I was watching some of your TikToks and saw you have a handy trick for removing paint from concrete. Would you, uh, you yeah. saw that. <laughs> Would you tell us what you use and, and how you discovered it? I don't know what happened. Some paint fell and I was like, oh my God, we need to remove the paint. <laughs> I had a guy's number I was going to call just in case, but um, I had Gatorade there and um, we started using the Gatorade because we didn't have any water and it actually took it all off. So I thought it was funny, so I made a TikTok for it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yet another use. Now, I think the company should, you know, give you some kind of royalty for this discovery. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, talking with Bridget Kimbrov, Adult Swim, Monica Campano, the co-founder and executive director of Living Walls, and artist Usley Mathurian about Adult Swim's mural project. Bridget or Monica, who were the other artists selected? The other artists are E.L. Chisholm. She has a mural on the West Side Beltline, and Emmanuel Rivas, has a mural in the Decatur Square in downtown Decatur. And can you describe their murals? Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, Erica's mural that's on the Beltline, it must be also the largest mural she's ever painted. It was, it's actually one of the largest murals we have painted. Hers is it's called Reflection. It is about how she, I don't really want to speak for her. The statement can be found in our Instagram, but it's really, it's pretty much about how she sees herself as a Black woman, how other people see her and the expectation uh, that the world has for her as a Black woman. It has multiple portraits of a figure that doesn't necessarily have a gender, but it is very feminine, it's masculine, it's, it's all of us, it is... It's a representation of, uh, I would say, Black excellence, and it's right on the West Side Trail on the Beltline. And Emmanuel's mural is right on the Decatur Square. You will not miss it. And his work is quite surrealist. He reminds me a lot of Dali. Uh, and his mural is about women, the women in his family. There's a whole poem that he wrote on the side of the mural. It's about love and loss and the important women that grew up with them, that raised them. Both murals are quite personal, and I think they're quite relevant as well as to young Black artists wanting to take up space in our streets, in the public space in Atlanta. The first round of artists selected earlier this year, Jasmine Nicole, Sofa Hood, and William Downs, painted their murals on the Plaza Theater, Decatur Square, and on Edgewood Street in the old Fourth Ward. What kind of feedback have you received since their artwork went up? It seems like everyone is enjoying the experience. Uh, our position is really to support and, and just help produce as we are not the curators for the projects. We're really putting a lot of emphasis in training and support. First and foremost, they all had a really beautiful time just working together and getting to know each other. And then from the community, I think that people can see, you know, the message that each of them are trying to bring with their work. And again, it's all about Black empowerment, creating visibility for uh, our Black community and, and also staying very relevant to the times. 
I think the reception has been wonderful. And I think that people can tell that there's a lot of care and intention with the artists that are being selected and the messages that they have in their murals. Bridget, what have you heard? I mean, I think Monica speaks well to the fact that there are two experiences. There's the experience of the artist and then the experience of the viewer. And uh, what I have gotten the most feedback on is the experience of the artist. It bled from the first round into this round, the excitement of speaking with Usley and Erica and Manny when we first kicked this off, their awareness of the project, having already done it once in the fall, just brought an energy to it that was great. And it is a very family building experience. I would say each of these installations and uh, the weeks prior that myself and uh, our producer, our, our art director, Trey Wadsworth spend with each artist for a few weeks developing the piece. In the arc of it, it's probably about six to eight weeks of, of constant communication and work. And the reward is, it's very community building within us. And I think that that shows as well as the diversity of the types of artists that we're bringing out and the diversity of communication and experience that the viewer is getting. Usually, do you hope this might lead to more commissions? I hope it does. (laughs) I know it will, but I will say overall, like this was truly my best work experience doing a mural and even with a big company. I'm truly thankful to Monica, Living Walls, and Adult Swim. This was like life-changing for me and I I got so much from it. Bridget, will this be ongoing? Yes, uh, we very much wanted to establish something where we could not only take advantage of the abundance of Black fine artists that exist in our city, but also create a scenario of adding space and equity for those artists. So Warner Media has signed on to make this an ongoing initiative. We're very excited about it. I've, we're already looking towards fall and I've already slated an artist for next spring. So I'm planning forward. Bridget Kimbra, production manager at Adult Swim. Mural artist Usley Mathuri and Living Walls co-founder and executive director Monica Campana. Their ongoing initiative was created to help emerging local Black artists and creators. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We told the truth, we obeyed the law, and we kept the peace. That's how the late former Vice President Walter Mondale summed up the achievements of Jimmy Carter's presidency. Carterland, a new documentary by two Georgia filmmakers, The brothers Jim and Will Pattis challenges many assessments of the Carter administration and provides a striking conclusion about President Carter's place in history. They join us now via Zoom. Jim and Will Pattis, welcome to City Lights. 
Thanks so much for having us. We are very excited to chat with you, and we're actually longtime fans of the program, so it's very exciting for us to be here. Yep. Oh, well, I feel especially honored now. Let's begin with your telling us about your initial interest in creating a documentary about Jimmy Carter. So, Jim here. So, initially, Will and I come from a public lands filmmaking background. We actually, we do a lot of work for the National Park Service, the Forest Service, and different nonprofits and tourism offices. From that background, we got exposed to President Carter in our professional career. His name kept coming up because of the work he did in conservation. And Will and I had been looking to do a feature film for quite some time you know, the more President Carter's name started to come up, we started to think, hey, people don't seem to know this about him. And then we started to explore this idea of people don't know about these incredible environmental achievements that he accomplished during his administration. What else don't we know? And so it really started as this exploration of the Carter presidency and this idea that Americans and and particularly Georgians, you know, because we grew up in Georgia with sort of a false impression of President Carter, but that people don't know that beyond the wonderful ex-president, he was actually a great president who was way out front on all of the issues, major issues that we're confronting today. So that was really what we wanted to do in this film was examine his presidency, sort of re-examine it and figure out what went wrong with it and, and why he wasn't reelected. What were those things that you heard growing up? Yeah, this is Will. Um, so growing up, we were kind of under the impression that Jimmy Carter was a amazing man, the best ex-president you always hear. But about his presidency, you hear words and adjectives like failed or ineffective. So growing up, we didn't really, it's not that we had a low opinion of President Carter at all. It's just that we didn't know much about his presidency and were never told good things about it. And so when making the film, the film was actually kind of in large part Gemini's discovery of this man and more importantly, his ideas. We bring it so much enthusiasm and it's our own enthusiasm. It's a film of discovery really for us, but we're all along the way saying, oh my gosh, did you see what he did with the Panama Canal? Did you see what he did with Camp David or for racial justice in this country and in this state and women's rights? And the list goes on, even climate change. And you say, how could a guy like this have lost? Yeah. And I was hoping you might add to your ages, if you don't mind. Yep. So this is Will. I am the older brother. I am 30 years old. And this is Jim. I would be the younger brother, and I am about to turn 29 years old. Well, I have to tell you that you have accomplished something extraordinary with this film. And I wondered what you studied in history about Jimmy Carter's presidency in school. Jim here. I think in school, we probably didn't learn as much as I feel like we could have about President Carter, or at least about the things that we've discovered in the process of making this film. But frankly, our our parents are both retired educators. Our dad was a world history teacher, spent over 25 years teaching in public schools in in Georgia. And our mom was a, a Montessori school teacher. So history was a big thing in our house. And Will and I are just sort of endlessly fascinated with American history. So our, our parents taught us to always be asking questions and to get to the core truths of things. And so that's what we were exploring with this film, sort of the, the Socratic method, if you will, as my dad uh, so often teaches. I'm fascinated by the difference in perception of our generations. Having lived through the Carter presidency as an adult, I remember thinking he is so wise and what he is saying is so good. Why is he considered naive? And you delve into that, beginning with the notion of his distaste for politics, or at least how politics work. Would you address that? the constant knock on him 
as, okay, an outsider, but an outsider who doesn't really care about seeing how the inside operates. Yeah, so this is Will. We actually started this project in 2019 during the middle of the Trump presidency and the contrast between the 39th president and the 45th presidents, their styles, you know, both of them were considered outsiders, but stylistically, they couldn't have been further apart. And what really struck us in this film, and I mean, we listened to a lot of President Carter's speeches as part of the research for this, but the speeches, I mean, we don't have presidents talking to us, Jim and I as millennials, I've never heard a president talk to us the way that President Carter did in his speeches. I think, you know, one of the interesting things now is that the current president was good friends with President Carter. He was a senator when President Carter was elected back then. This is stylistically the closest we've ever had to President Carter since he was in office. Jonathan Alter, who just wrote a phenomenal book about Jimmy Carter, he says in the film, there's this paradox of American politics, which is you can only go so far with an entirely pure message. And we really explore that in this. And it's almost a, uh, you know, condemnation might be a bit of a strong word, but a condemnation of the American political system to that extent. Andy Young is featured prominently in your documentary, and he talks about the politics of respect. And this is something that goes back to when Jimmy Carter was sworn in as Georgia governor. Would you talk about his acceptance speech and his views on race relations prior to the presidency? Jim here, absolutely. That was yet another one of the things that really struck us as we were creating this film was we actually watched his gubernatorial inaugural address when he was sworn in as governor of Georgia. And he says the time for racial discrimination is over. And that sent shockwaves throughout not only the state of Georgia, but the entire South and really the country, you know, Time Magazine puts him on the cover after that because he's really the front man at that point for this movement for racial justice in the South, particularly among elected leaders. That was unprecedented. And as we find out with President Carter, he goes on to do so many unprecedented things, not only dealing with issues like race, but women's rights appoints 40 federal judges, where as previously in all of American history, there had only been eight in all of American history. And he goes on to appoint 40 women to the federal bench. Andrew Young, Ambassador Young, says it really well. It is this idea of the politics of respect. President Carter then brings in Andrew Young into his administration. And that was really to take the civil rights movement that Martin Luther King had promulgated onto the global stage. And Carter does that with Andrew Young. And at that time, the United States foreign policy was in shambles after the Vietnam War and all these things. And so there was so much distrust. And for President Carter to come at it from that angle and say, you know what, no, we're going to respect foreign countries. We're going to stop all of this CIA nonsense in Central America and other places. And we're actually going to ask countries what we can do to help them. That was unprecedented. And that really is, that's the kind of soft power that President Carter wanted to project that I think we sort of lost for quite some time after his presidency. Filmmakers Jim and Will Pattis will be back with more of our conversation about their new documentary, Carterland, after a short break. You're listening to WABE at Latta's Choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with Will and Jim Pattis, the filmmakers of the new documentary Carterland, 
here. Will talks about how their background in environmental conservation informed their approach to conveying Jimmy Carter's achievements in nature preservation. Jim and I's background is in public lands filmmaking, and that was what originally brought us into the project. We're really excited to tell that story specifically. I mean, President Carter doubled the size of the National Park Service. He tripled the size of our wild and scenic river system. And I believe the stat is probably doubled the size, if not more than that, for our wilderness system as well with the capital W wilderness. And so for us, you know, you look at his work, not just in Alaska, where, I mean, if you look at a conserved lands in Alaska, it's unbelievable. You're looking at 150 million plus acres, which is like the size of the state of California. It's tough for folks to wrap your head around just the amount that he did for conservation. And a lot of these lands, I mean, climate change, he, he used, as far as presidents go until the modern, you know, until President Obama, President Biden, really, presidents have never taken on climate change and he was going to. But just with that Alaska lands contribution alone, you think about all the forests that he saved and all of these places that are preserved just because he pushed for it. And so many of the things, like you mentioned, he did at great political cost to himself. Alaska, he spent a lot of political capital on as well. But man, generations later, look at what we have, this crown jewel of America and Alaska as far as our public land system go. And again, decades before we knew how fragile these lands were. Or I guess we knew, but no one listened. Right. Yep. The film brings out how Jimmy Carter's love of the outdoors is entwined with his spirituality, his faith. Would you talk about Rachel Clark and her role in his life? Yeah, uh, Jim here. That's a story that few Americans get to hear unless you're going to make the trip down to Plains and go to the Jimmy Carter National Historical Site, or if you really want to do some digging around the internet. But it's a very important story because President Carter, first of all, his environmentalism, he really was the first president, you'd have to go back to Theodore Roosevelt, who really made the environment and conservation a top priority of his. And it meant so much to him. And that was part of, uh, as Will touched on, what made this film personal for us. But Rachel Clark, her husband worked on the, the Carter farm in Plains, and she lived there and she would take young Jimmy through the, the woods in southwestern Georgia, and she would take him fishing, and she would teach him all about the wildlife and the natural world. And she would do it through a spiritual lens. And that inspired, I think, a young Jimmy Carter to really gain this appreciation for the environment. Living in, in rural Plains, Georgia at the time, you know, Jimmy Carter was a young boy. They didn't even have electricity. So you lived very close to the land. And I think that combined with Rachel Clark taking him under her wing and nurturing his love of the outdoors was instrumental in his developing such a passion for conservation and the environment. And it really, of course, comes out when he's governor of Georgia and then president of the United States. And we felt like it was a really important story to tell in this film. His declaration that we are stewards of the environment, we must be stewards of the environment, reflects a moral imperative that governs his life to this day. And yet that moral imperative was something that either scared or alienated people. Why, why do you think that was so? Yeah, this is Will. A great lens to look through his presidency, his actions, and his leadership model revolves around this idea of a moral imperative, that if we don't need to do this because of financial reasons or because of self-interest, but really this idea that we need to do something because it is the right 
thing to do. I think Americans, we are kind of hardwired to not really always think that way, and especially increasingly so. And so to hear somebody say, we need to do this simply because it's right, you know, it's just a, it's a strange ask, you know, you say to yourself, well, what else, what's in it for you? What's, you know, what, what's the rub here? And we interviewed several folks who are in the Carter administration. They say, if you really wanted to tick off Jimmy Carter, you would go into his office and say, we need to do something and give a political reason as to why something needed to be done. That's, that was a way you could almost be assured that that thing would not be done. And so as far as morality, it's something that's really important to him and that we admire as far as making the film and the a takeaway we want for folks when you leave the theater or leave your screening experience to say, maybe I should do this as well. <laughs> that's okay. Well, the very idea that he describes the energy crisis in terms of a national security issue the underpinning there is that do you want to lose lives because of our dependency on oil from the Middle East? And people resisted being told to conserve energy and, and didn't have that moral imperative as a guiding force in their lives. You mentioned... <laughs> the best way to tick him off. I thought it was remarkable when Jason Carter, Jimmy Carter's grandson, states in the film that his grandmother, Rosalind Carter, was the best politician in the family, and that, in fact, she thought the Panama Canal decision might have been better to address in a second term. Yeah, Jim here. That was really interesting to learn because as we all know, you know, those of us who know about President Carter know that President Carter and Rosalind are inseparable. Rosalind has been his chief advisor throughout his entire life. And of course, when they ran the, the peanut business, they ran that business together. Rosalind, we learn from not only Jason Carter, but uh, as well as Chip Carter, their son, that Rosalind really was a, a very gifted politician. And she would advise President Carter about this is going to politically, here's, here are the ramifications of certain things. And, and yes, with the Panama Canal, you know, she did. She recommended that you wait till a second term. But President Carter was a very rare breed of politician particularly as president of the United States, in that he felt if it was something that needed to be done for the American people, he was going to go ahead and do it. He didn't care what the political consequences were going to be for him, you know, the short-term outlook. And Dr. Robert Strong tells us that in the film, you know, he really articulates really well how President Carter was very aware of the fact that some of the things that he was doing during his administration were going to cost him politically. He was aware of that, but he would do it anyway because he felt like it was the right thing to do. And he felt, if I don't do it now, it might not ever get done. I might not ever get a second term. And that's a rare quality in a leader and particularly in a political leader. And I think it's something that should be admired. Will and I do feel that the film at its core is really about moral leadership and the kinds of values we should look for in a leader. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the Georgia filmmakers, Jim and Will Pattis. Their recent documentary, Carterland, presents a new look at Jimmy Carter's presidency. The Camp David part of the film is, you know, one of the film's climaxes. And it's really kind of the last part where every action, it's really the halfway point. And so every action after that really starts to cost President Carter. But in that moment, you see 
the suspense of it. And I mean, can't just give folks background. Egypt had the largest army in the Middle East. Egypt and Israel had been at war for a very long time, even modern wars for the last 30 years. But I mean, till biblical times, really. And with President Carter at the time, everybody tells him that this is a foolish thing. He shouldn't be doing this. There's no chance of success in this thing. Everybody who we interviewed, we interviewed a member of his National Security Council, Dr. William Kwan. And he says, like, this can't be done. But he goes ahead. He tries it anyways. And it's coming down to it. Both sides are threatening to leave. You have Anwar Sadat on the one hand, who's the president of Egypt, and Menachem Begin on the other side, who is the prime minister of Israel. And these guys are just, they can hardly even be in the same room together. And everybody's saying this was a mistake. We never should have been here. And finally, after multiple threats from both sides for them to leave, it, you know, different times they had their bags packed, as Jonathan Alter in the film says, And finally, President Carter has this idea, and as Andrew Young puts it, his stroke of genius showed up, and he brings each of them a photo of themselves with their grandchildren, and he asks them basically, poses the question, a paraphrase here, how can you do this? Future generations are counting on you. And so they come together and make this agreement, and it's an agreement that has lasted for five decades now and longer, an agreement that nobody said could ever be done. The sad part of it is that Americans, it's not something that we value too much here, but something that is incredibly important for the world. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Another major point you make in the documentary is how Jimmy Carter turned morality into action. Would you discuss the Ethics and Government Act? Jim here. I think to understand the Ethics and Government Act, you really have to understand that President Carter came into the office at a time when this country was reeling from the aftermath of the Vietnam War, and we were reeling from Watergate. And I think there are a lot of parallels to that situation that President Carter inherited to sort of what President Biden's inheriting today. So President Carter comes in and he's relatively unknown, but he's elected because he promises that he will be honest. And people believed him because President Carter had this way of speaking where you believed him. And turns out it was because he was honest and he was a deeply moral man. And so that was really one of the first things that President Carter championed and sort of had a mandate when he was elected was to really look at how he could clean up this aura of scandal, that this cloud of scandal that surrounded the executive branch of government. And so he shepherds the Ethics and Government Act and creates the office of the special counsel, which we have seen used in impeachment proceedings and and investigations of presidents and members of the executive branch And this was a tremendous piece of legislation that really was very far reaching and went a long way to creating oversight of much needed oversight of the executive branch. And of course, Jimmy Carter was the man to do that because you see who he is both in his presidency and of course now after having been president, this is somebody who is a a very deeply honest and, and moral man. The governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, figures prominently in your documentary, and he says that before Al Gore, Jimmy Carter championed the environment and made us aware of the dangers of climate change. I wonder how many people even think about the Global 2000 report. Yeah, that was towards the end of our filmmaking process. We started to uncover this Global 2000 report ourselves, and it is a unbelievable document. I recommend everybody who watches this to just Google Global 2000 report. You can pull the PDF online. This is a report that was brought to the desk of the president, and I believe in 1980, and it was commissioned by President Carter via uh, Gus Speth, head of the Council of Environmental Quality, and 
he brings this report and it says like, we have been having a negative impact on the world via climate change. Gus, who is in the film, goes on to say that we need to make actions, take actions to change this, or else in the year 2000, our world is going to be a very different and scary place. We are going to have sea level rise and carbon emissions are really having a huge impact. And this is, you know, back in 1980, you know, late 1970s that this was happened. And Carter was deeply concerned about this. And so that's one of the tragic parts about this film. When you learn this stuff, you learn that we had a guy who planned on taking action against this back then. Yeah, it just makes me question things. Tragic indeed. And so few people paid attention or cared. Of course, now we're living with the consequences, though I think there is also something uplifting here in that he still believes that if together we take action, if we come together and can sacrifice a bit, we can save what's precious. Who made the point in your film that he was the last president to ask sacrifice of Americans? Jim here, that was Jonathan Alter, who just came out with the book on President Carter, his very best. We thought that was a really important quote in the film. It also reminded me of how scary the 80s were for me, at least, in that so much of the seriousness, the concentration on crises that were paramount during the Carter administration were dismissed with Ronald Reagan's years. And I think it's very revealing that the 80s were called the me decade. We now know that selfishness didn't get us anywhere good. Yeah, Jim here. We interviewed Tom Steyer, who you know recently uh, ran for president and is a really leading activist on a lot of this. And you know, when we were making this film, I had read an op-ed that Tom Steyer had written a few years ago about exactly that, about what happened when Reagan became president, and it really ushered in this era of individualism in the United States. And so I was really excited to get to interview him for this film. And in the film, he talks about how President Carter, he was trying to get Americans to come together to collectively solve our problems. You see in President Carter's crisis of confidence speech, or as it's erroneously referred to the malaise speech, he is trying to pull Americans together to get them to collectively sacrifice, but also to have a sense of shared experience and shared outcomes. And when President Carter loses re-election, that vision for the future of America, it wasn't just President Carter that lost an election. It was that vision of, of America, that future was lost. And President Reagan, of course, comes in and he says, as Tom Steyer puts it in our film, uh, you know, I'm not going to ask you to sacrifice a thing. We're just fine. We can drill. We can do all these things. And, you know, I'm not going to ask you to sacrifice anything. And that's a popular message, of course. But we should want more from our leaders. We should want them to challenge us to be better people. I think President Carter was really one of the last presidents we've had who did that, because as Jonathan Alter says, that's a political loser. <laughs> well, I wondered, has President Carter or Mrs. Carter seen this documentary? Yeah, they actually did recently get a chance to screen the film. President and Mrs. Carter screened the film, and they shared their opinions with us over the phone. And they told us that they were incredibly proud of the film and, and really moved by the film. And that was just a tremendous thing for us to hear, because obviously, you know, when the subject of your film is, is telling you how much they like the film, that, that certainly means a lot. Oh, my goodness, yes. So this idea that Jimmy Carter is a great statesman, but wasn't such a great president, 
is something that you disprove. Yes, he has been a great statesman, and he's done so much in the years since the White House. But what do you think is the ultimate takeaway from your film? Yeah, this is Will. So ideally for Jim and I, this is our first feature documentary, and we want people not leaving the film saying, man, life sucks, you know? And so for us, not many folks leave without tears in their eyes, but they're tears of sadness, but also tears of joy. What we want people to leave the film with emotionally is this idea that we can all do better, that here's an example who is still alive today, who is still an example now, who we can use to say we can make the world a better place and to leave the film with that idea that it is the actions of a few. I mean, this is a guy who had a very unlikely chance and rise to the presidency. And that, you know, Lois, one thing you mentioned earlier was you're alluding to this idea that of the strong man in this country that we usually turn to. And Tom Steyer again talks about this and he says, that's what Reagan brought us, this idea of the strong man and that as Americans, we always look to as somebody who knows how to do things. President Carter did not give off that because that's not who he was. He's viewed as a weak leader by a lot of people because of it, even though he wasn't, he had carried soft power. Mm. And so I think that's a great takeaway for folks as well, as we don't need to always be looking to the guy who says, I know what to do in this really decisive looking person. We need to be looking at the person who actually has policies that, so that can get us there. And somebody who speaks, you know, positively and about us positively and is not tearing down everybody climbing on the backs of others to do it. Lois, uh, Jim here, I would add to that. I never thought that... Uh that our first feature film would have the air of a Greek tragedy. But, but it really does. But what we have to remember about Greek tragedies is that there's always a moral to the story. And I do feel like this film sends that message out there uh, that it's about moral leadership. We had a leader in the past. We elected a leader who, who asked more of us and who was honest and good and did the hard things even when he knew they were going to cost him politically. Yes, it's tragic that he didn't get a second term and that his vision for America didn't get a second term, but we've elected someone like that before and we can do it again. And that's, I think, one of the main things we want people leaving the theaters with. Georgia filmmakers Will and Jim Pattis, the filmmakers of the new documentary Carterland. You've been listening to City Light our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll discuss The Poet, a new film of a dance work on the theme of dementia from Terminus Modern Ballet Theater. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes, Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.